A pleasure to be here. Um, well, there's two things, there's a couple of things that I think this book does that is sort of different from other Magna Carta history. First and foremost, it brings it back to Australia and how the Magna Carta directly impacted on the birth of Australian democracy. So um, one of the original sort of lines in the blurb was that it's the prologue to Australian democracy because it teaches how um, how our parliamentary system and so much of our political culture evolved through the story of Magna Carta. They weren't enshrined in stone in 1215 by any means, but they evolved at the same time as this document became this important cultural icon. And that is also the sort of key theme of the book is the importance of history and culture in the preservation of, of rights and how particularly in this um, climate of tearing down statues and uh, assaulting Western civilization and all the rest of it, that no, actually having this uh, cultural norms and this common ground that um, anchors political debate in a particular country is incredibly important. Uh, the story of Magna Carta is the story of myths becoming reality. So you have Magna Carta itself being misinterpreted in the 17th century by people like Edward Cook, uh, who thought that Magna Carta declared that all taxes had to be approved by parliament and all laws had to be approved by parliament. And even though that was wrong, they fought for it and they won it and won recognition for it. And it actually became fact. And that's also how Magna Carta itself was sort of envisaged, that Magna Carta was in some respects meant to be a restatement of these mythical laws of Edward the Confessor, this sort of bygone era before the Norman Conquest where everything was fine and dandy in England, which again was sort of historically questionable, but because they made these demands and they appealed to this shared common culture, they were able to win recognition for things that if they had conjured them up purely out of thin air without that story, without that mythology, they never would have been acknowledged. Yeah, well, the, the direct precursor to Magna Carta is Henry I's Charter of Liberties. But what Henry I's Charter of Liberties essentially is, is it's a very short document. It's certainly not got the scope of Magna Carta. And it doesn't really enunciate too much other than 
basically we're going to get back to those good old laws of Edward the Confessor that we're going to um, respect the culture and tradition that existed in Anglo-Saxon England. Well, the document has, as far as the sort of political and constitutional um, evolution that is one of the main focuses on the, of the book, it has one important clause that says two very specific types of taxes, uh, which were a feudal aids and uh, the other one escapes my mind right now, but two very specific taxes had to be approved by the common consent of the realm. And it's that sort of little nugget that ultimately evolves into that great American declaration of no taxation without representation, that ultimately parliament and elected representatives will be able to control how people are taxed, how laws are made, all these sorts of things. But that little nugget is actually immediately removed from Magna Carta. So there's a 1216 Magna Carta, and that's already gotten rid of that particular caveat that is so important. But it is actually in the aftermath of Magna Carta that you get that idea of laws and taxes being approved by parliament coming into fruition because John, the evil King John, who's sort of the villain of the piece in Magna Carta, he dies and his son, Henry III, has to come to the throne while still a boy, while there's this period of civil war. And the people in charge under him actually have to be really pragmatic. And even though, Magna Carta had been this rebel document, they reissue it and start to sort of rule by consensus and by talking to people. And they sort of establish these precedents that you that very gradually work themselves into the British culture that ultimately Parliament has this say over taxation. And it is that say over taxation and that say over laws that then are really fought out in the English Civil War. Well, Magna Carta is part of our legal history. We absorbed it like we did a lot of existing statutes uh, through our colonial inheritance, but it is just an ordinary statute. And any statute that's written in Australia that overrides a, a clause of Magna Carta takes precedence over Magna Carta. So any people have this mistaken view that Magna Carta declares fundamental laws in a way that maybe the American Bill of Rights does, but we don't have that political tradition in Australia. We're very much inherited to the British idea of absolute parliamentary sovereignty. So governments can override Magna Carta wherever and whenever they want. It is more this sort of cultural icon than it is any sort of living practical document at this point.
yes, they do. But at the same time, society needs to force them into it. And that's where that role as a cultural icon really cements itself. It's Magna Carta was so powerful because such a great proportion of the population believed in the mythology that when someone went against that mythology and sort of broke some unspoken bound, then they rose up in revolt and rejected them for it. And there's there's no revolt anymore. And perhaps that is partly because we have lost that sense of history, that sense of what it means to be part of this freedom-loving Western civilization and all the the battles and deaths that went into winning the rights that we are now sort of flittering away. Well, it's all about um, basically being able to have a positive narrative again. And it is, people, historians in particular, don't like sort of narratives and teleologies because they put history in boxes that sort of limit off interpretations and create certain fallacies and all the rest of it. But the narrative itself is still incredibly important. And it's how it's how people understand things. It, human beings are sort of hardwired to have this narrative basis and until we can sort of talk about Australia as this positive democracy that emerged out of convicts and became basically one of the most advanced democracies in the world as far as how wide the franchise was how early we gave votes to women all these sorts of things it's that positive narrative that then you interweave Magna Carta and those rights that need protecting into so it, as long as Australian students are part of this positive story, they'll want to maintain the momentum of that story. I think freedom is as we understand it has a whole swathe of sort of christian concepts underlying it so i talk about for example the coming of christianity to the anglo-saxons and the anglo-saxons had group-based justice that completely overrid the individual they had um blood feuds where entire families would go to war and be collectively held responsible for the actions of one of their members there was no individual justice and that centricity of the individual is part of the legacy of Christianity. Another is the idea of freedom being universal. So you had the Roman idea of libertas and this idea of freedom, but it was very much limited to the upper classes and you had slavery and all these things below it. But Christianity made liberty a universal value because each individual soul would ultimately have to win salvation for itself through their free will and free actions and uh, john of salisbury is really good on this that he sort of argues that one of the reasons that tyranny and tyrannical kings must be slain by christians is because that if you're forced into doing things you don't have that christian freedom that's necessary to win salvation
Yeah, well, it's it's not a secular document. The very first clause is freedom of the church, and it's the Archbishop of Canterbury that arguably plays a very large role in drafting the document. But even the Enlightenment, certainly in its early stages, is incredibly based on all this religious thinking, and it's not prescriptive religious thinking. So it's not just reading what's in the Bible and then practicing that. It's taking premises from religion and then elaborating on them. And that's how you construct these ideas of freedom. So they're not, they're not in the Bible necessarily, but they're based on premises in the Bible. And certainly John Locke, who is the sort of inventor of the centricity of the individual as we understand it in the sort of modern West, his entire basis of why every individual needs the right to life, liberty, and property is all based on the idea that man is created by God and is still God's property. And that's why it's, it's completely illegal and immoral to take another life, not and even to take your own life, not because you're taking a human at their face value, but because you're taking the human that is owned by God. And that those ideas then do get secularized, but the, their inception can never be really disentangled from their original religious basis. Of course, that, yeah, as, as these arbitrary liberties and arbitrary rights get added to the, to the cart of inalienable human rights, it becomes overburdened and it becomes untenable. And one of the things that I set up in the introduction to the book is this argument about how do you actually win recognition for these rights? It's one thing to claim that something is a fundamental right, and it's one thing to write a universal declaration of human rights or write a Magna Carta type document, but how do you then ensure that it is acted upon? And I think that religion was one of the ways in which you got people to really buy into things. Another, and this is the story of the book, another is this cultural and historical recognition where it's the broader society recognizing something that really anchors it. Because some new document being created by the UN is, is barely worth the piece of paper it's written on without that sort of broader recognition and actually sort of cementing itself somewhere more fundamental. Well, it's grounded in Christian precepts elaborated on by important people like Thomas Aquinas. There are political cultures that didn't necessarily adopt those elaborations in the same way. And um, certainly um, 
John Fortescue, who's this um, English writer who's writing in the Wars of the Roses, and he's one of the first ones to claim that in England, all laws have to be approved by Parliament and all taxes have to be approved by Parliament. He very much adopts the ideas of Aquinas and says how much they culturally fit into the British framework, the English framework that existed in England. So it is that give and take that certainly you need to have a culture that's going to prove fertile ground for the seeds that are embedded in the Christian message. We are, we are losing uh, the culture of freedom, but there are certain aspects of what it means to be Australian that I think are um, surprisingly strong. I think one of, the, one of the messages in my sort of narrative of Magna Carta is the importance of Berkey and conservatism and sort of building, building freedom and trying to make progress in these sorts of things, but grounding them in ways in which the good is then consolidated. And I think Australians have this sort of innate small c conservatism that you saw in the Republican referendum, you see in their propensity to elect conservative governments for two thirds of their history, that we have a sort of if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality, which is really good for holding on to certain institutions. But at the same time, because we're a bit lackadaisical about it, we also don't stand up and fight when things are being eroded before our eyes. I don't think it was. Uh, certainly the um, ideology of Britishness was very powerful in protecting certain concepts of liberty, that we had this idea that we were more British than the British, that we had been all these exiled chartists and these people who took ideas that had been developed in Britain, but we were actually able to elaborate on them far more thoroughly and create a far more egalitarian and free society in Australia in this new land freed from the legacies and sort of dead weight of the old world. And, but we don't really have that, again, this, that culture of Britishness. I, James Curran wrote a book called The Unknown Nation, Australia After Empire, which sort of talks about how much of a sort of hole that left in Australian culture when we lost that part of how we fundamentally understood ourselves. And we need to find something to replace that. And I, I think it's important to note through all this sort of Anglosphere um, positivity that, and sort of looking back positively on our previous British identity that I am um, descended from Irish Catholics and know the sort of negative side as well, but it's not necessarily about just the being positive for positive sake, it's what that positive narrative provided. And that's what it ultimately comes back to, the actual utility of the narrative that we've lost.
I sorry, I'm not I'm not a legal mind. I had to um, read up on Alex Castles, the great Australian legal historian, and sort of borrow a lot of secondary literature um, from from people who have done a lot of the groundwork to read up on the legal impact. I know that um, in 1925, High Court Justice Isaac Isaacs claimed that the, an Australian's basic rights to life, liberty, property, and even citizenship were based on the Magna Carta rather than being based on the Australian Constitution. Well, that is that is a big fundamental question. Does Locke work without God? And it's a question that society is in the process of trying to find an answer to. I do think that it's about this normative nature that God provided something that the vast majority of society believed in. And you had, that's why you had this broad acceptance. And I think that it's it may be a lesser alternative but culture and history does provide some of that normative element that you lose without religion but it certainly is a problem that if you're just conjuring rights out of thin air how are you actually going to get people to act upon them and actually fight for them Well, it's sort of a sort of Promethean idea of recreating society from the ground up. People, people have this frustration, and I think it, and again, it probably is part of the um, result of the vacuum left by a lack of religion. One of the great teachings of particularly medieval Christianity was that this life is fleeting and you can do, do whatever you can to improve it, but know that there are ultimately limitations and that sort of suffering is part of life and all these things that say Jordan Peterson is so um, frequent to bring up. But in this, new, in this new modern world where so much changes every decade or so, people have this idea that they can fix everything, even though there is great Burkean wisdom in what our forebears have done and that we don't know everything. And if we, unwind everything at the same time, we're probably going to end up with the French Revolution again, maybe not as extremely violent. But the lesson is there in history that you can't really start from scratch and expect things to be successful. Yes and no. Certainly the um, idea was to bring back the laws of Edward the Confessor. And I actually spend a couple of chapters in my book talking about the Anglo-Saxon Witan, which was the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of parliament and how there was certainly a far more conciliatory culture 
political culture in Anglo-Saxon England before the conquest, where the king did have to consult with nobles and really lean on them. Um, so Ethelred the Unready, his name is actually, original name is actually Ethelred the Unraid, which means ill-counseled. So his name itself was sort of a play on this idea that the king really had to consult with people. And if he didn't choose the right people to consult with, the whole kingdom could um, be sacrificed to Canute. But um, there's also certainly premises in Magna Carta that aren't necessarily in the Anglo from the Anglo-Saxon tradition. And certainly the document itself is far longer and such a greater elaboration than anything you find from the Anglo-Saxon era. So it's about this sort of this oak tree growing out of the same seed that it's the fundamentals probably are Anglo-Saxon, but it, it's constantly built upon to the point where you get the sort of Westminster parliamentary democracy system that we know today. It's been great to be here. Thanks for having me.